Join me in prayer before we turn our eyes to God's word. Father, we, uh, we just thank you for uh, abil- the ability to sing praises to your name. Thank you for our choir and just, just the song that they just led us in and, and just to reflect on the beauty of the gospel, Father, and, and how you have, you have destroyed and broken the chains that held us into sin and in darkness, and you have, um, you have freed us from that, Lord, and we belong to you now, and we praise you for that, Lord. So we just thank you for, uh, for them and for them leading us in that song. Father, we, uh, we lift up those who are going to be serving, the, serving you on mission this week in uh, Guatemala. We pray for Anne-Marie and Samantha, uh, Father, and the rest of, of folks on that team, lots of folks from our community um, that are going to be going on that trip. And, Father, we pray that you would go before them, and we pray that the gospel would be, uh, would be on their lips and they would be quick to uh, share the good news of Christ with those they come in contact with. We pray that you would watch over them. And, uh, and Lord, we just uh, uh, thank you for that opportunity, and we desire for there to be fruit for your kingdom as a result of it. Father, we thank you for bringing Elijah and Elizabeth and Cadence uh, back from their, uh, their appointed trip, and we uh, praise you for the work that they were able to do. We give you glory and honor and praise for that. Uh, and, Father, also we lift up uh, uh, Sister Church, Lord. We lift up First Baptist this morning, and we pray your blessings upon them, Lord. We have been praying uh, for a while now that you would lead them to the right man to be the pastor of their church. And, uh, Father, our desire is to see many healthy churches here in our community, in our state, in our country, and around the world, Father. Your church uh, is, is the vehicle through which people hear the good news of the gospel. And so, Father, if our desire is to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ, then we'll also have a desire to see healthy churches. And uh, so we just pray your blessings upon them. We, uh, we ask that you would lead them, that you would guide them in, uh, in this decision. And we just pray for the health and, uh, and the flourishing and, the, and uh, your blessing to be upon uh, that church. Father, we thank you for our time here that we have to spend in your word. Father, I pray that we would take it seriously. Lord, you have spoken to us through your word. That is a gift of grace. I pray that we would see it as a gift, that we would receive your word. Uh, Father, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, if we need to be convicted, help us to be convicted and help us repent of sin. Father, if we need to be challenged, I pray that our hearts would be open to being challenged by you. If, if we need encouragement, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged from your word. Lord, you just take this time. You teach us your word by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, help me just to say what you have already said, uh, Lord, and I, and I pray that through the preaching of your word, you would receive praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up the First Peter uh, chapter 2. If you haven't already done so, First Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at two verses today. Verses 9 and 10. An exile's new identity. A people with a purpose. Uh, well, let, me ask you, let me ask you a question. Who are you? Who are you? You don't have to answer out loud. But how would you answer if I were to come up to you and I were to say, all right, I want you to answer this question. Who are you? How would you answer that simple but very, very important question? I say that's a very important question because who you are plays a huge role in how you live. Who you are and who you view yourself to be will play a huge role in how you live. Who are you? Maybe you would say, well, I am a husband. Or maybe you would say, I am a wife. And if that's true of you, then you probably do things like check with your spouse before you make important decisions. If you don't do that, then you probably don't value your relationship with your spouse very much. Or maybe you would say, I am a mom or I am a dad. I'm a parent. 
And in that moment, you're seeing yourself, you're identifying yourself with your role as a parent. And so if you are a parent, then you probably do things that parents do. For instance, if you're a daddy, you might give horse rides. That's what I do. I get on all fours on the living room floor and kids climb on my back and I carry them around and my wife bites her fingernails while the kids fall off and I try to catch them and we do it again. Um, and it scares my wife, but that's what, that's what we do. This is a, that's a dad thing that, that I do. Maybe if you're a mom, you are a great comforter. I try to be a great comforter as a dad, but every time my kids get hurt, they scream for who? Mommy. I'm like, don't you know that I love you? But there's just something about their mama that they want. And so maybe you would say, I'm a mom, and, and, and so I would see you giving comfort to those sons and daughters. Maybe you say, well, I am a son. I'm a daughter. I'm a child. I I have parents that I live with. And so maybe you do son and daughter things like ask your parents for money. That's something that sons and daughters do. Um, Perhaps you would say, hey, I am I am a grandparent. And so I would I would expect to see you doing things that grandparents do, like spoiling your grandkids and then sending them home full of sugar and then we parents have to reap the consequences and i looked at my daughter the other day and um my mom was over at the house and i had just walked in and i i just assumed by the way she was acting that granny had brought some sweets i said how much sugar have you had because she was bouncing off the wall Um, if you're a student Maybe you say, I say, who are you? And you say, well, I am a student. And so if you're a student, then I would expect to see you doing student things. I would expect to see you studying and paying attention in class and doing your homework. Maybe you're a musician and you say, I am a musician. Then I would expect to see you practicing that instrument and expect to see you performing for others. Maybe you say, I am a mechanic. Well, then I would expect to see you working on cars or some kind of vehicles. Maybe you say, well, I'm a cook, and I would expect to see you cooking and making things, and I would expect to see you bringing me some chocolate chip cookies that you had baked. Uh, Those are things that I would expect. Maybe you say, I'm an athlete, and if so, I would expect to see you wear your team colors, and I would expect that you would be at practice and that you would participate in the competitions. Who we are greatly impacts how we live. As followers of Jesus, God has called us to live a certain way. But before he demands a certain way of living, he gives us a new identity. And therefore, it's essential to know who we are. We need to know what God says about our identity so that we will live the way God intends. We need to know what kind of people we are. And then, in light of that, we need to live for the purpose that God has given us. Look with me here at these verses. Verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Really, this passage, these two verses, goes right along. It's really in the same section as verses 4 through 8. Really, verses 4 through 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2 is one unit. And it's a unit that is describing our identity. So we're going to have the same uh, summary uh, sentence that we had for verses 4 through 8 last week, because really it's one 
larger passage, and that's this. Believing in Jesus results in a new identity centered on Jesus, which joins us to one another as the people of Jesus and then leads us to live for the glory of of Jesus. The reason that Jesus is repeated over and over and over in that statement, and we saw that last week. If you were to glance back at the previous few verses, we would see that Peter is writing to the elect exiles and he tells them about a stone that is the cornerstone, this God's cornerstone. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's the gospel. That God has chosen Jesus Christ to be the cornerstone, the cornerstone of his people, the cornerstone of his church. And all who believe in him are forgiven of their sins. Therefore, they're not put to shame. So the honor is for him who believes. But for those who do not believe, Jesus has become a stumbling block. He's become one over whom we stumble. If we don't trust in Christ. And so our lives center upon this cornerstone. Peter, making sure that his readers, his audience, these elect exiles who are trying to figure out how to live for Jesus in the world that doesn't like Jesus and therefore doesn't like them, wants to remind these elect exiles of who they are. And we need to be reminded of that as well. Last week, as we talked about our identity being centered on the cornerstone, we said that our new identity is inseparably linked to the person of Jesus and to the people of Jesus, and that our new identity is directly related to our response to Jesus and to God's choice through Jesus. We saw all of that in verses 4 through 8. We must be centered on the cornerstone if we're going to be the purposeful people of God. If your life is not centered on the cornerstone today, then that's the first thing that must happen in your life. So how can my life be centered upon the cornerstone? How can my life be founded upon Jesus? By trusting in him, by believing that he is who he says he is, that he's done what he said he has done and that he will do what he says he will do. And that is that he is the son of God. He has died on the cross for your sin and he will save you if you will repent of that sin and trust in him. But once we're centered on the cornerstone through faith and as we continue to stay focused on this cornerstone by continually coming to him. Remember, that's what Peter said in verse four. As you come to him, we continue to come to Christ over and over day by day, minute by minute. We come to Christ. As we do that. As we stay focused on this cornerstone, we will live out our new identity in him. I want to share with you three more truths today about our new identity. The first is this. Our new identity is communally shared with the people of Jesus. Our new identity is communally shared with the people of Jesus. And we talked about this a little bit last week in verses that said that we're being built up as a spiritual house. We're like living stones. We're not just a stone off by ourselves, but we're put together with the people of God. We see that again here in verse nine. Notice the the they, the, the, the we, the plural nature here. But you are a chosen race. He's not talking to one Christian. He's talking to all the believers that he's writing to. You together are a chosen race. You together are a royal priesthood. You together are a holy nation. You together are a people for his own possession. We are a people. To trust in Jesus means to be joined not only to Christ, but also to Jesus' people. 
Sometimes we want to divorce those two things. We say, I want Jesus, but I don't want the responsibility of belonging to a people that I have to care for, that I have to open my life up to so they can care for me. We want to do this Christian race solo, but it's not a solo race. We run together as God's people. Or who are these people? Just incredible words that the Apostle Peter, uh, inspired by the Spirit, uses to describe us as Christians. Together, we are the people of God's new humanity. Notice that phrase. We are a chosen race. We are God's people, his new humanity. So God created a perfect world and in the beginning and the people were perfect and they belonged to him and they followed him. And it was his humanity. But those people rebelled against him. And ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating from the tree that he had told them not to. He has been working out this plan to create for himself a new humanity that lives for the praise of his glory. And as Christians, we get to be a part of that. Peter is borrowing again like he does so often in his letter from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 43, we find these words about the people of Israel and ultimately the people of God, ultimately believers in Christ. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. This is messianic language. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. It's a passage about new life. Where there's no life in the desert, I'm giving rivers, I'm going to give life to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And when, when Peter says you are a chosen race, he's pulling that language right out of the Old Testament things that God has already said. And I think about the people of Israel. Oh, God, why did you choose them? <laughs> I mean, have you read the Old Testament? You read it recently? I mean, there's a lot of books there and there's a whole lot of bad stuff about the Israelites. And it's their fault. I mean, they just turn their back on God over and over. I mean, the pages of the Old Testament is chalked full of sin and wickedness. And some of it comes from the nations, but a lot of it comes from God's people. Why in the world did you choose Israel? One writer said this, Israel is a chosen people, but not a choice people. And you know, the same is true of you and me. Christian, you're not a part of the people of God because you deserve to be. I am not a part of God's chosen race because I deserve to be. Why? God has loved. He has loved us so much. First Corinthians chapter one. We get a we get the Old Testament plight of Israel. The fact that they didn't deserve to be chosen by God put in a New Testament Christian context for us as followers of Christ. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us. We are not these things on our, on our own. Jesus was these things and is these things for us. He became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have nothing to boast about when it comes to our privileged position, our chosenness in God. 
We have no reason to boast. We can't look at ourselves just like Israel couldn't look at themselves and say, I'm chosen by God because I'm a choice people. We say, I'm chosen by God not because I'm a choice people. Why? Because he loves us. We talked about this week one when we looked at who he's writing to, to the church of God um, and, and, and the elect exiles and that they are they are people who have been chosen by him according to the foreknowledge of God, the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling through his blood. Why? Why would God do that if they didn't deserve it? It's just because he loves you. It's because he loves us. The language of election in Scripture is always coupled with the love and deep, sincere and compassionate and gracious love of God. Why did he choose the Israelites? Well, because he loved them. We find in Deuteronomy, I want to turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 7, these words. He's writing to the people of Israel. And I, I, and I think God would say the same thing to you and me today as Christians. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. And redeemed you out of the house of slavery. God Almighty, who you and I have sinned against, loves you. Loves me. Loves his people. And together, we are the people of God's new humanity. But together, we're also worshipers of the true king. Notice that next phrase there. That we are a royal priesthood. What does it mean to be a royal priesthood? Well, we have the word royal which makes us think about a king or a kingdom. I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of royalty before. When we think about royalty, we think about those who submit their lives to a king, who is the king in the story of God and the story of his word and the story of this life that he's given us. He is the king. Who are we? We are not the kings. We are not the queens. We are his loyal subjects. He's a kingdom, which means there's a kingdom, which means everyone is a servant. But there's a priesthood, which means everyone is a representative, not just a a chosen few of the Christians, not just the pastors or the teachers. But everyone, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a royal priesthood. What's the priesthood do represents the Lord to the people There's a mediator between the people and the Lord. Ultimately, when we think about the priesthood, we think about what happened there in the Old Testament temple. It could all be summarized as worship. So if together we are people of God's new humanity, then also together we are the worshipers of the true king. You say, but I thought we have a mediator and his name is Jesus. I would say, yes, that's right. The blood of bulls and goats cannot satisfy God's wrath against sin. And so Christ has come and he is the one and only mediator between God and humans. That is the only way we get to God is through Jesus. So then why did you say a minute ago that we have a mediating role in our lives? Well, think about it this way. The only way that humans can have a Eternal relationship with God, a relationship that is restored and whole where we are welcomed into his presence is through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of Christ. 
So here's the thing. Jesus is the one true mediator. The only way anyone in this world gets to God is through Jesus. But how are they going to know that? How are they going to know that? We don't have the same type of mediating role as the priesthood in the Old Testament who literally went in and offered sacrifices on behalf of the people because the sacrifice has already been made. But we do have a priestly-like role, a mediating role, when we go and we tell people how they can know God as their Father. As we go and we declare to people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we have a priest-like responsibility We are representing the true king as we live our lives for the praise of his glory. Together, we are worshipers of the true king. Notice the next phrase, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And then he says a holy nation, a holy nation. What does it mean to be a holy nation? What does it mean to be holy? We've talked about this back in chapter one. when We look in verse 15, 16, where we're called to live holy lives because God himself is is holy to be holy means to be set apart it means to be different so here's what here's what peter is telling the elect exiles he's saying you are a chosen race you are a holy priesthood you are a holy nation you are a different kind of people remember who he's writing to these exiles are are undergoing persecution they're undergoing trials of various kinds we looked at in chapter one because they're following jesus They're suffering because they look different from the world. And the temptation is going to be for them to stop looking different than the world and start looking like the world so they'll be accepted by the world so they won't have to endure those trials. We undergo the same pressures today as followers of Christ. So how does Peter encourage them? He tells them who they are. He says, you are a different people. You have been made different. It makes sense that you're being rejected. It makes sense that people are making fun of you. It makes sense that you are being reviled because of who you are. You are a holy nation. Think back to the people of Israel. The nations around them didn't go, oh, look at look at Israel as they seek to live holy lives. Man, that's awesome. We're so proud of you, Israel. No, they gathered their armies and they kept trying to attack them and defeat them. And yet that was God's purpose for them. They were to be a holy nation. They were to represent the the set apartness of God. In other words, when we look at the sin in the world around us, God is very different than that. And how is the world going to know that by looking at the people of God and seeing how different they are from the world around them? And then they'll know that God is different. When they look at the world and they see people shooting one another, And they look at Christians and say, Christians don't do that. Hey, I want to be a part of that God. I want to be a part of the God they serve. When they look at the world and see people lying and cheating just to get ahead. They look at Christians and say, they don't do that. Man, I want to be a part of that God. I want to worship that God. See how we are representatives of the one true king. But we have to be okay with looking different. Our holy living, just like Israel, grabs the attention of the world to point them to God. But I wonder if your life is grabbing the attention of the world and pointing them to God. Christian, is your life 
just looking like the rest of the world. And if it is, it's not pointing other people to God. This means you're not living out your identity. When writer said this, a man need not even start on the Christian way unless he realizes that it will compel him to be different from other people. But then notice this fourth phrase. We have a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. If together we are the people of God's new humanity and together we are the worshipers of the true king and together we are set apart from the world, then we could say this. Together we are the possession of God. You know what that means? God owns you and God owns me. Christian, your identity is possessed by God. You are his belonging. He owns you. Think about the implications of that. I think for starters, it means that you are greatly valued by him. Where do you find your value in life, Christian? Where do you find your worth? Well, there's all kinds of things that we can try to find our value in in life. There's all kinds of things that we could try to find our worth in. Even some of those, even all of those things that I mentioned earlier, we could try to find our worth, our value in our role as a husband or as a wife or as a mother, or as a father, or as a child or as a grandparent or as a student or as an athlete or in your job or in your hobby. You can find, try to find your identity and your value in that. But they'll all. Lead you wanting more. But when you realize that God owns you and the way that he owns you is by sacrificing his son to purchase you. Now that is where true value comes in. Think about a museum. I was in a small museum just this past week. I went to a, an Atlanta Braves game. The first time I've been to their new stadium. They wanting to go for a while. It was mine and my wife's anniversary. And so we've been wanting to go. And we, we finally had an opportunity. We went to a game there. Uh, we got to see uh, six innings of ball because it got rained out. And we got soaking wet. But we didn't get struck by lightning. So that was great. Um, we were walking back to the car. And, and I was holding my wife's hand. And I said, we might not ought to hold hands. So if one of us goes, the other doesn't go. <laughs> That's probably a morbid thing to say, but it did cross my mind as lightning was popping. But before the game started, they had the section set up in the new stadium, and you could go through, and, and, it's, and it's kind of a, a, a museum, if you will. And there's, there's some jerseys, and there's some gloves, and there's some bats, and, and you get a look. And, and, but, you know, all those jerseys, they just look like the jerseys that the guys had on on the field, and they look like the jerseys that I can buy in the store. I mean, what made those so special? It's because of who owned them. What made that glove that they had bronzed so special? I mean, it was just an old glove from like the 30s. I mean, it was like just trash. It was worn out. Why, why would it be made into a statue? It's because of who owned it. Lots of the things we see in museums are really worthless, except... That they were owned by someone. 
And because of who it was that owned that thing, those things now have lasting value. How much more so the people who God owns, who God possesses. And it's not just a lasting value for the length of this earth, but it is a lasting value for all of eternity. That's how much God loves you. He has placed that value on you, not because you deserve it, but because he has chosen to love you. But knowing that we're owned by God not only leads us to see our and find our value and our worth in him. It also leads us to worship him and live for him. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 19 and 20. We find these words. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, let's just think about this. Identity as the people of God. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Lots of implications and applications that we could make from understanding our identity. And I just give you two. There's lots of other ones. I just want to give you two applications for us. And these are very general. Understanding our identity will, one, protect us from ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism is simply centering our attention on one ethnic group. Ethnocentrism. Ethnocentered. See, here's what happens as fallen humanity. We think my people, which often means the people that look like me, maybe the people that belong to the same country, or we can even divide ourselves up even more and say the people that talk like me or have the same skin color as me. But at the very least, the people in my country, we are the special people, right? I mean, in that song just a few minutes ago, we we're talking about shine, Jesus, shine. Fill this land with the Father's glory. Don't raise your hand, but how many people thought about just the United States of America when you sang, fill this land with the Father's glory? Don't get me wrong. I want this land of the United States of America to be filled with the glory of God. But it's not just about us. There are peoples all around our world. The land that we want to be filled with the glory of God is all of God's creation. We want all the peoples of the earth to know him. We want to love all the peoples of the earth. That's who we are as a church. That's why when we gather together, we don't just when we gather for a church gathering, we don't sing about our country, the United States of America. Because. We are gathering under God's authority with his mission, which is for all the peoples of the earth to know him. That is when we gather together, people from every nation, language and tribe should be able to gather with us and worship with us, regardless of what country they are from. Granted, we might need to put the words on the screen in some different languages so they could join us in that. But we would not exclude anybody, even as we gather together to worship him because of what language they speak or the color of their skin or what country they're from. This chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this people for his own possession is the peoples of the world. I want to come back to that in a second. The second thing that understanding our identity will help us do is it will keep us devoted to the church. Let me just say this in passing. Listen, if you, if you think that you're a Christian and you think that you're living your life for the glory of God 
and the church really doesn't play a big role in your life, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. These things are true of God's people. Together. And the only way we experience the fullness of what it means to be a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a holy nation, a people for his own possession, is when we fellowship with one another, when we grow with one another, when we live on mission with one another. We cannot have Jesus without his church. Our identity is huge. And it's communally shared with the people of Jesus. But then here's the thing. When we understand who we are, then we are ready. Are you ready for this? We are ready for the purpose that God has called us to as his people. And here it is. Our new identity is specifically purposed for the proclamation of Jesus. Our new identity is specifically purposed for the proclamation of Jesus. You say, why would God do that? Like, what's his purpose? We said that he loves us, but why would he why would he want to do that? Why would he want to show his love in such a way that while I was still a sinner, he would send his son and die on a cross for me? Why would he do that? God is on a mission to raise up from every nation, language and tribe. People who worship him. Remember, Adam and Eve failed at that. They failed. God created them to be worshipers of him and they failed. And since then, he is on a mission to raise up more and more worshipers of him. Listen, Christian, your number one objective in this life is to live in a way that worships God, that praises God, that brings him glory. Look at what he says. You are these things that, here's our purpose statement, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He gives us a new identity so that we would praise him, so we would praise him in our individual lives, so that as a mom, as a dad, as a grandparent, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a student, as whatever your job is. That you would praise Him in every area of your life, every day of the week. Listen, we don't worship just when we gather on Sunday mornings. If that's the only time we think we're going to worship Him, then guess what? When we gather together, there won't be any worshiping God. Because the six days that are out of the week that we're not worshiping God will not result in worship for Him one day out of the week. I think the six will outweigh the one. And we gather together... Our hearts will not be ready to worship him together because we haven't worshiped him on our own throughout the week. He's called us to live, to declare the excellencies of him. Do you believe that he is excellent? Do you believe that there are things about God that are worthy of praise? Do you believe that there are things about his son who died on the cross for you that would cause us to want to live for his glory? It would cause us to want to direct attention to him, not to ourselves, not to things that we do, but direct attention in our lives every moment of every day to him. You better believe it. I mean, his excellencies are immeasurable. And so we have more than enough reason for our whole lives to live for his glory and honor and praise. I love how Isaiah connects the cornerstone with light shining in darkness. 
Remember we talked about this cornerstone back uh, last week? We talked about how Jesus is this cornerstone, but some stumble over him. In, in Isaiah chapter 8, we find these words. Remember, this is 700 years before Jesus comes. It says that he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. We go on, it says many shall stumble on it. But then he moves into chapter nine and he says this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations to where Jesus is from. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. He goes on to that familiar passage that says, For to us a child is born and to us a son is given. We know that this light dawning in the great darkness is none other than Jesus Christ. I mean, there is reason to praise Him. Do you know what your life would look like if you were still walking in darkness? Do you know what your life would be like if you die in the darkness? To experience separation from God forever? Today, if your life is not centered on this cornerstone, you are walking in the darkness. But Christian, He has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Tell me what compares to that. We live our lives for the praise of so many things. We live our lives for the glory and worship of so many things that, that they, can't, they, can't hold, they can't hold any, any kind of weight to the weight of the excellencies of the glory of Christ. Why wouldn't we live for the praise of His glory? He has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And He has done it for us. So we praise Him. But you see, you can't, you can't read this verse without also thinking about the people who are still walking in darkness. Your family members, your neighbors, people who've never heard the name of Christ. There are people all around our world that are walking, living, and dying in darkness. And in darkness they will remain unless they hear that Jesus is excellent. Unless they hear about the excellencies of Christ. And how, Paul says, are they going to hear unless someone goes and tells them? And so the purpose of our praise isn't simply that we would sing some songs of praise to God throughout the week. Isn't it simply that we would gather together at appointed times during the week to worship Him? The purpose of our praise, the purpose of our proclamation that Jesus is everything to us and He is worthy of our lives and so that other people would come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. You really want to live your life for the praise and glory and honor of Jesus. Tell someone who is lost that Jesus loves them and that He died on the cross for their sins and if they will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, that they can have everlasting life, forgiveness of sins, a relationship with God as their Father that nothing in this world can take away. You really want to declare the excellencies of God? Tell someone who doesn't know Him about Him. That's when God is most glorified in us.
One writer said the heart of evangelism is doxological. Doxology is just another word for praise, Greek word for praise. Our evangelism is not motivated by a sense of duty. Our evangelism should not be motivated by a sense of fear. Our evangelism shouldn't be motivated by simply trying to check it off our list of what we're supposed to do as Christians. Our evangelism is motivated by worship for God. And perhaps it is in my life and maybe in yours. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. The reason, the reason that I'm not sharing the good news of Christ with people more than I am is because in my heart, I'm not living to declare the excellencies of him. I'm living for the praise of myself, living for the praise of my family, for my job, for something on this earth. I'm not living for the praise of His glory because I can guarantee you one thing. If we would live for the praise of His glory, people around us would be hearing about Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's not so much an indictment when we look at the lack of people coming to Christ, the lack of times we fill up our baptismal pool, perhaps it's not as much of an indictment on our evangelism as it is on our worship and the state of our hearts. The vision of God is that all nations would worship Him around His throne. We read about that in Revelation, which means the mission of God is that all nations are being called by Him to worship Him, which means the people of God on mission for God to fulfill the vision of God live so that others will learn to praise Him and Him alone. Can I just say something? Ask you a question. How will we declare His praises to a lost world if we're not willing to gather together to declare His praises to one another? How will we attract people to the Gospel in our praise if it's not coming from hearts that are overflowing with joy. I'm, I'm going to be real with you for a moment. Now that I haven't been, can I just share from, just from pastor's heart? Last week, I, 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 was, I was standing down here singing a song with all of you during our worship service. And I remembered that message I preached Months ago about singing and how we're to encourage one another. And I was like, you know what? I need to put my preaching into practice. And I was like, I need to look around and I need to encourage one another with, with singing. I need, to, I need to be encouraged by your singing. I need to encourage one another with, with my singing. And my heart hurt as I looked around. And scarcely could I find a smile on someone's face as we were singing about how precious Jesus is. Literally, that's the words that we were singing. And and I want our church to be living on mission. There are people in our community that need to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. I want to see people coming to know Christ. I want to see us filling our, our, our baptismal pool over and over as people come to know Christ and are obedient to be baptized and to, to follow Him. How in the world, why in the world would they want to follow a Jesus that puts a frown on our faces? I 
How do we keep our hearts joyful? I know it's not always easy. Let's bow these last, this last verse. We know who we are. First part of verse 9. We know what we're supposed to do with our lives. Second part of verse 9. But we can't forget who we once were and what it took to make us who we are now. Our motivation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Third and finally, we'll wrap up with this. Our new identity is mercifully given by the work of Jesus. Mercifully given by the work of Jesus. How are we who we are? How are we a chosen race, a royal priest, and a holy nation, a people for his own possession? How do we get to do something so awesome? Like proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, it's not because of anything we have done. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, Peter's going back to the Old Testament in the book of Hosea. God called Hosea, who married a prostitute, to show and represent how much God loves his people because we prostitute ourselves with the world all the time. And God comes back and he purchases us out of slavery. But he had children with that prostitute. And he told uh, uh, Hosea, God told him to call those people. You have not received mercy. That was one child's name. Literally, the child's name was you have no mercy. And the other child's name was there was more than two children, but we're going to talk about two. Another child's name was not my people. Literally, that's what the child's name was. Not my people. Like, it's time for bed. Not my people. Stop hitting your sister. You have not received mercy. Those were their names. Why? Because he was illustrating a point. These people, his people, were not worthy of his love. But it was also a foreshadowing. And he says in Hosea, one day I'm going to call the people who have not received mercy I'm going to call them people who have received mercy and I'm going to change their name from. You don't belong to God, you are not my people to my people, I'm going to change their name, I'm going to do this incredible, awesome work inside of them. It's not something they can do. They can't change their identity on their own, but I'm going to give them a new name one day. That day has come. It's come with Christ. We have worked in our hearts, transforming our hearts of stone and giving us hearts of flesh so that now we have received mercy. Now we are not just a people, but we are God's people. So, Christian. Remember that you once walked in darkness, but now you walk in marvelous light. And as you remember that that was only because God loved you in Christ and sacrificed His Son for you. May that lead you to embrace your identity, casting all the other identities aside, letting the identity that you are in Christ and Christ is in you rule your life. And then let that lead you out to live for the purpose that He has given you, on mission for Him to proclaim His excellencies for yourself, for your family, for one another in the church, and to all the peoples of this world. Let me ask you one more time. Who are you? Who are you? Let's pray. Father.
we thank you for who you are and for what you have done. Father, if there's someone here today who can't proclaim your excellencies because they have never experienced your excellencies, Father, they've never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, Father, I pray that today will be the day of salvation for them. They would repent and turn to Jesus. Father, otherwise they will walk in darkness and die in darkness and experience darkness for all of eternity. But Father, there's something so much better. It is your excellencies, the excellencies of Christ. Father, I pray for those of us who have experienced Christ, who have tasted and seen that He is good, that we would live to declare those praises from hearts that overflow with joy. That nothing else would rule our lives except You as our King. And that we live every moment of every day. In this moment right now, God, that our hearts would be focused on You. Nothing else. The same would be true tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Father, You are worthy of praise. And we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.